This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Happy New Year and welcome to 2023. I hope the year has treated you well so far. We're starting the new year out strong here on Exvangelical with an interview with one of my fellow Irreverent Media Group podcasters, Bradley Onishi. Brad is co-host of the wonderful podcast, Straight White American Jesus, and author of the new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. The book releases this week, so please be sure to go out and buy it from your local bookstore or wherever else you might find books. We have a lot to talk about and we'll get right into it, but first, I've got two things to mention up top. First, Exvangelical is a production of the Post-Evangelical Post. In addition to this show, I also write a newsletter called the Post-Evangelical Post because all my ideas become as puns. I write about books, about media and technology, as well as all the things related to this show like faith shifts and changing your mind and all the different themes that dominate this show. You can support this show as well as all my other work and get access to ad-free podcast feeds for both this and Powers and Principalities for just $5 a month or $50 a year. I've simplified my pricing in 2023 and so no more tiers or anything like that, just $5 a month or $50 a year. I continue to donate 25% of net proceeds to two great organizations, the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and White Homework. You can read about all the reasons why I do that over at postevangelicalpost.com slash about and just check out everything else that I'm that I'm putting up there. It's, I'm I'm very proud of it, and I hope that that you check it out. And if you can also subscribe for free if you want to keep up with some of my other work as well. Second, I want to talk to you about an upcoming virtual conference that'll be happening in just a few weeks, and that is called the Decon Virtual Conference. The conference will be happening on Saturday and Sunday, January twenty first and twenty second. And we'll feature a lot of the creators that you may know from evangelical deconstruction type space of TikTok and elsewhere online. Tickets are just $25 and the website is over at decon2023.com. Some of the speakers are those like Dara Star Tucker, uh, George Lee, I Blame Bill, April Joy, Queen of the Heathens, Donnell Wrights, Christian Smith, Jagazes, and many more. It's going to be a great conference that you can attend virtually. Uh, no need to worry about COVID precautions or anything like that. You can access this over the weekend, and there will also be breakouts and, and workshops and other great activities that will be happening over that weekend. Again, tickets are just $25 to hear from directly from some of your favorite creators that you may know from this particular 
slice of the internet. So head on over to decon2023.com and learn more about this conference. All right, let's get into it. Hello, this is Exvangelical, and I'm your host, Blake Chastain. And my guest today is a return guest, Bradley Onishi, who is the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast and author of the new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Brad, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Blake. And I need to say that as somebody who's listened to you a lot and who's been on your show a couple of times, every time I hear you, I'm like super jealous of your seemingly like preternatural radio voice that you have somehow. Because <laughs> like as somebody who podcasts a lot myself and listens to him afterward, himself afterward, I just feel like I have this frenetic tinny like sound. And then I listen to you and I'm like, I just feel like Blake was like, comes from the 1920s or 40s or something in this like beautiful radio intonation. So there you go. Thank you for that compliment. I I appreciate it. I I often like when I listen back to myself, I, I only hear the stammers and the Midwestern ticks and like all of this stuff that just that, that drives me nuts when I listen back. I listen to myself form these half thoughts and and it drives me nuts to listen to myself, but I appreciate the, the compliments. <laughs> well, I, I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, we've talked several times before, and I'm really excited to talk about your book. Congratulations on it. I want to really cut right to it, though, and open where your book does, which is in reaction to the January 6th insurrection, something that's now referred to as J6. But what I noticed is that your first chapter can actually be summarized in just 10 words, really just two sentences. The first is, I should have known better. And the second, is I could have been there. I want to give a little further context to that first sentence and give the full full context and quote. And then I want to hear sort of, I'd love for you to elaborate for the listeners on what you mean by those two statements. So in the first part, this is from your, from your first chapter, quote, after four years of living under a contracted and sinister vision of America, I was ready for the country to unfurl itself from the myopia of the previous administration and move forward once again. As a scholar who teaches courses on the racism, misogyny, xenophobia, and homophobia that mark American history, I should have known better. I did know better. So let's let's start there. Uh, why do you feel like, as someone who thinks a lot about these sort of dark parts of, of American history and American religion, why do you feel like you should have known better? I, you know, I, that quote that you gave takes takes place in the in the morning of January 6th. And it was before all of us started seeing the images pour across our screen. And I had actually woke up and gone surfing that morning. And if, if people remember, that was right in the wake of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock winning unexpectedly in Georgia. So I wake up at like five in the morning, I get in the car, it's freezing, but I'm like, and I'm not a morning person, but I'm like buoyant. <laughs> I'm like, wow, like Biden is president, uh, not my first choice, but you know, way better than the alternative. We have this slim majority in, in the Senate for the Democrats, which is way better than the alternative. And the House is 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 blue. So maybe the, the country might might go somewhere that is helpful. And I'm sitting in the ocean, I'm alone, and I'm like just thinking of of wow, new horizons. Get in the car, go home, and turn on and see all these 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 folks at the Capitol overrunning police and so on. 
And I, I just realized in that moment, I should have known better because every time that this country seemingly takes a step forward, it, it always takes one or two steps backwards, uh, depending on, on, on which episode in history you're watching. And so that was on my mind. As an ex-evangelical and as somebody who studied white Christian nationalism for a long time, I also should have known better that this was not going to end without uh, a dramatic kind of fight. And by end, I just mean this big lie in the 2020 election was not right. going to wrap up without a dramatic claim to the country by those who really believe that it is theirs. And we saw that. So should have known better on two fronts. I had a burst of naivete and hope, and I, <laughs> I, I still have those things, but uh, they remain measured as always in the wake of, of what happened. Yeah. I, I hope you know, and I hope the listeners know that me laughing is a, a knowing laugh. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, no. it's, yeah, it's not, um, it's not laughing at, <laughs> and necessarily the content, but, but it's, it's a hashtag relatable. Type oh, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, I think the other, so the other statement you mentioned is I could have been there. Is that right? right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the second part is this very deeply humanizing part, in my opinion, which is that you said that you could have been there. So thinking just in, in, in the multiverse somewhere, there may be a version of you that was there. Right. Um, well, so what, <laughs> what, uh, what made you have that reaction sort of in a similar moment, you know, of, of thinking and, and trying to process this, this sort of cataclysmic apocalyptic in, inflected event that happened and then thinking, Oh my God, if my life had gone a different way, I might've been right there. So. I think like you and a lot of, uh, you know, ex-evangelicals, I, I knew that people from my old church and my old community were not necessarily in shock or horror at what was happening, but in fact, were quite glad and were, were probably praying for the rioters and praying for victory and praying for Trump to be reinstated. I learned soon thereafter that there actually were people from my hometown and my church that were there at, uh, at January 6th. And so I just thought to myself, okay, if I had stayed in the movement, would I be thinking that a god, uh, a, a godly warrior and a, and a responsible patriot would do everything possible to reinstate the rightful president who is going to deliver the country back to its rightful founding and and God given God, godly mission? That was one thought. And, you know, as I've thought about this, Blake, there's another thought that that hits me. And I wonder what you think about this and, and many people listening is the heyday for me of evangelicalism was the 90s, right? right? I converted in the 90s. I stayed in ministry and in evangelicalism until like 2004, 2005, 2006. And, you know, during that that moment, you had like this call to take back culture and and take back America for God. But I don't feel like you had a lot of like, demonization of your opponents or violence is is actually legitimate kind of talk. I mean, some of that was there on the fringes, but you know, those were the years where like George H.W. Bush was going to be the compassionate conservative, the godly president. And even after 9-11, don't get me wrong, there was just a a a, a lot of tragedy after 9-11 in this country in, in terms of the response. But we didn't see what we see now, which is the kind of radicalization of violence and extremism. What am I talking about? Well, uh, what if I convert in 2017? Like, what yeah. if what if 17 year old me or 14 year old me converts in 2019, and the, all of that zeal and all of that like enthusiasm and all of that willingness to just go blindly into whatever I think God wants and and my leaders say is right? 
I think of that guy. I think of that kid who's like a, a college freshman who's doing everything he can to get involved in his church because he's so excited about it. And then he's ushered into the QAnon, J6, Big Lie, MAGA world as a result of getting involved in his church. And that's what, that's what scares me. And that's also somebody I think of like, I could have been there. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. I think that, I think that's a very salient point. Like, I mean, by comparison, the late nineties, early two thousands were, were considered considerably moderate compared to, to at least the type of domestic rhetoric that we have. Like, I mean, when I think of, when I think of the architects of the, the neoconservative push towards the, the war in Iraq and elsewhere, like they, they tried to at least justify things or, yeah. you know, like they, they tried to, when they were speaking to the American people, they, they tried to, to couch it in a, a level of double speak or, or what have you. But, but that is, has gone by the wayside given the in, influx of Trumpism and the way of just you know, saying the quiet part loud. And I think you're right. Like one of the worst and poorest serving myths in progressive spaces is that like conservatism will just sort of die out or that it doesn't replicate itself. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but if, but to your point, if you are in one of these places and you, by virtue of your religious conviction or zeal, you then become inculcated in all this other stuff. And <laughs> that is terrifying to think. And like, even now it's not, just limited to your local church. It's also all these online influences and like totally where you go to like 4chan and all of its descendants and QAnon and whatever else. I, definitely... you know, I feel like in those days we would get in the car and listen to Dobson or we would, you know, there would be conferences and there was workbooks, but now as you're saying, it's podcast, it's YouTube, it's right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's ubiquitous in, in that sense. And so I mean, I don't. I, I feel like I sound like a, an old man now. I need, probably need to stop. But <laughs> I just <laughs> we are we are old men compared to. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. But but uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely. I think you you did identify something there, like that. For as much as like '90s, late '90s, early 2000s was all about like zeal, see you at the poll type type public displays they, they were moderate compared to storming the the u.s capitol yeah <laughs> totally yeah <laughs> well your book is a very welcome addition to this sort of dialogue that we're seeing across all sorts of media over the last couple of years through something that is now being discussed as white christian nationalism there's something you do early in your book that i actually hadn't seen spelled out or delineated elsewhere in a text, which is you say why it's important in the written text to capitalize white. And yes, this is a podcast, but why is it important that you do that in the text? And why is it important to identify the white part of white Christian nationalism? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, there was a lot of back and forth with editors and other folks about capitalizing white because it's not normally done. Uh, it's not standard in in various style guides and so on. And so, you know, uh, black has been capitalized for a long time in United States English, and that recognizes the specificity of black as a, a racial category with a particular history. And I, it seemed to me, and this is not 
new, this is not my original thought by any means. Nell Irvin Painter and many other black authors are really the ones I'm indebted to on this. But by capitalizing white, we we call attention to the specific history and cultural markers of whiteness. And that seems really important that for too long, whiteness has been considered the standard and therefore it it is invisible. It's inapparent. It's that which is always the kind of default rather than something that is seen or called out or studied or historicized. And so that's why it was really important to me to do that. It also, I think, is sometimes a shock to the system because if you are a white person, you're not used to it. And a lot of folks don't react all that positively to it. It's kind of like, wait, wait a minute. You're saying I have a thing about me that I need to consider and reflect <laughs> on. And, you know, for me, I'm a mixed race person. And, and so I, 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 I have my mother's side is white. My dad's side is, is Japanese American. And I see how this works in my family. White folks are just not used to wait. Like in Japanese folks and Asian American folks and other people of color, it's like, we think about it every day, all the, all day, you know what I mean? And so whiteness is something I think that the more white people think about the better. And that's why I wanted to do that. I think talking about white Christian nationalism is important because, and I think like you've talked about this on, on your various shows that the data really reveals that there are Christian nationalists of all stripes. So again, if we talk about black Christian nationalists, they exist, but on the whole, they see the country in a hopeful vein, in a vein of, of wanting to move forward toward a better union, a more perfect union. Raphael Warnock, if you listen to him preach, is always talking about the country living up to its creed for the first time. White Christian nationalists, on the whole, the data says, have a much different outlook. They want to return the country to when it was great, to when it was in, in its ideal state. It's a nostalgia narrative. It's a narrative that looks back at a time that uh, supposedly was the Renaissance until all of these interlopers and meddling kids from Scooby-Doo got involved and ruined everything. <laughs> and so to me, when we talk about the whiteness, we realize the different stories people are telling about the country and about themselves. And I think that's, that's important. And Christian nationalism has become such a, such a lightning rod, so to speak, and something that has just entered the lexicon very quickly. And I think that's just sort of the nature of language now and accelerated through Twitter and other social networks is that that once a term gloms onto something and it captures the imagination, it spreads much faster than than we're sort of historically used to up to this point. How do you define Christian nationalism within within your work, within your text? And then the follow-up question to that that I think that leads into is is how do you begin to identify the presence of something that, that we now call Christian nationalism or white Christian nationalism. Yeah. I mean, first you would know about this because you coined evangelical. So we just, you know, we need to pay homage to the, <laughs> the hashtag, the hashtag. I'm yes. very specific about my attribution, <laughs> <laughs> but we need to pay homage to the, uh, to oh. the, the, the progenitor. So, <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot of definitions of Christian nationalism and, and you're right. It's being talked about so much now that it's almost, it, we're going to reach a point to where people are going to, not want to use it anymore. But I, I, you know, instead of giving a long academic or historical answer, let me just give a simple test. Okay. If you think the country was built for and by Christians, you're a Christian nationalist. So built by Christian national or built by Christians. It's a way more complicated story than that, right? We mm -hmm. all know, or we should know that the founders, the various founders, the dozens of people, not just one or two, but the dozens of people who had the ideals and, and the, uh, the inspiration to put together our founding documents and and so on had a various approaches 
to faith in the divine. Uh, Some of them, what we might call Orthodox Christians, many of them not. And so if you think that the country was built by Christians, carte blanche in a very like sort of straightforward way, you're a Christian nationalist because you think it's a Christian country in that sense. And you're ignoring really, really important, complex and detailed aspects of our history that are really important, including the separation of church and state and the history behind that ideal and so on. The, the, the next one is even more damning. If you think it's built for Christians and you might say, well, no, I, I think that people of color uh, who are Hindu or Buddhist or, uh, you know, white atheists, they can all be here. That's fine. Okay. But I want to dig a little deeper there. So it's built for Christians. Are you uncomfortable if you see somebody running for office or president who is not a Christian? Would you be uncomfortable if we just said, great, let's just take in God we trust off the money. Let's take one nation under God out of the pledge. No more God talk. Would you be uncomfortable if our Congress was no longer 88% Christian? Would that make you, would you be okay if we had a woman who was a Hindu who was president of this country? And now we start to say, okay, if that makes you uncomfortable, you're a Christian nationalist because you're saying, I think it's okay for non-Christians to survive here, but I'm not okay with them thriving here or governing here and being in positions of leadership or power. And that's, that's Christian. It's a very low bar I'm setting here to be a Christian (laughs) nationalist. If you think 4th of July and God and country go together, you're a Christian nationalist, right? If you think that Christmas, hear me out now, right? Let's just do it. I mean, let's make everybody (laughs) mad. Let's make everyone mad. You ready? If you think Christmas should be a national holiday, you're a Christian nationalist, right? And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should change it. I'm not, I'm not starting a petition to change. I don't, I'm, I, I am too tired to start that fight right now. All I'm saying is that's Christian national. And, and, and you might be saying, well, why the low bar? And it's because I don't want to, there's time to talk about militias. There's time to talk about Stephen Wolf and Doug Wilson. And there's time to talk about Rod Dreher. That's fine. I want to talk about that lady in your church who, who has a, a cover image of the cross and the flag on her Facebook profile. I want to talk mm. about that small business owner, the 39 year old dad, right? Who talks nonstop about how this is a Christian country and he'll defend his rights at a PTA meeting, blah, blah, blah. I want to talk about those people because those are the ones on an everyday mundane level that are driving Christian nationalism in our communities in ways that we often don't talk about as much as the extremists and the militias and the blah, 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 blah. So, right. Right. But those are the, those are the people that, that at least exist on the spectrum of Christian nationalists. (laughs) Like, and, and I, I, I think this is where some some of the folks that we've both of us have talked to at various points on our shows, like uh, you cite the work of Perry and Whitehead in there. There, there are four different relationships to this concept, this more nebulous concept of of Christian nationalism, and that's that's immediately what it evokes is that almost in the same way that that people have have unexamined racism in their in their assumptions about life or about what have you in many ways just based on how so many of us grew up we have christian nationalist assumptions too that deserve to be at least examined and taken seriously because of the very straightforward things that that impact it even now we we see because of social media again we see that enacted in these local elections local petitions to defund libraries to 
take CRT out of out of the curriculum, even though it wasn't there. <laughs> All those things, right? Totally. And I like so just today, it's the day after uh, Zelensky came to Washington and gave his sort of daring speech to Congress. And Sean Foyt, who is one of these people we talk about too much and is, you know, a, kind of a bombastic personality, but he he tweeted, you know, the, the, a picture of, of Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi holding the Ukrainian flag in Congress and said, are you kidding me? Like, and he was basically saying, uh, along with a chorus of others, it's America first. Why are we holding a, a Ukrainian flag with Zelensky in Congress. And there was a time, Blake, where uh, a lot of American Christians would have said, hey, wait a minute, Ukraine is like 80% Christian. Like mm -hmm. 80% of Ukrainians are like Orthodox Christian. And I'm not even, I don't like this thinking. I'm just, this, is, this used to be though a way of thinking. It's 80% Christian. A lot of the folks who are losing their lives and fighting against Russia and Vladimir Putin are Christians who go to church and are Orthodox and have been baptized. And you could hear the people at your church in the 90s being like, we should support them. We should, right? Because the kingdom of God has no borders. It's about the king, right? And now what's the ethos? The ethos is not asking about the Ukrainian Christians. It's saying, I want to ask about America, right? And that, you know, when people want to see Christian nationalism sort of bubble to the, to the top in ways that they can identify, that to me is is a really good example. Now, I don't like either way of those thinkings. Uh, either I don't think we should just protect and help people because they're Christian, and I don't I don't subscribe to any of that. But I do want to kind of point out maybe a shift that we've seen over the last fifteen or twenty years. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is definitely not the type of American that like America. This is not the America that the America in a broad sweeping term. I'm saying that, but even within governance, post World War II, this would. We funded the Marshall Plan that helped yes. rebuild Europe. Totally. <laughs> you know, those, that's not that's not the same largesse, you know, that you see at the le that level of government or at that yeah. level of commentary. But but then even even in the 40s and 50s, there was the reaction through Americanism and Billy Graham and all these <laughs> other yes. people who wanted to put America first. <laughs> so you're right. Yeah, it's 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 just just wild to to see that to see that happen. But it, at the same time, it's it's very much what we've gotten used to <laughs> yeah. over the last few years. I do actually want to also talk about the mythology of this, because we've already touched on it in, in, in a number of ways, I think. But one of the things that you address directly in the book is central to Christian nationalism is the myth that the United States is a Christian nation. And why... Is it so important to identify it as a myth and and name it as such? And also, since even once you once you understand it to be a myth, what is it about mythologies that become so motivating for people in their day-to-day -day lives that will motivate them to change their Facebook profile or show up at a PTA meeting? These these very abstract things like you know, that historians have been talking about it a long time, like Benedict Anderson and Imagine Communities and all these other things. Like totally this this all has been delineated in in academia time and again. But what is it that from an individual level spurs people to believe a myth and then spur them to action? Yeah. That the way you framed it is so is just so spot on. It's it's really just a great question. All right. So I think we all live by myths. And I know some folks listening are like, nope, not me. I left evangelicalism. I'm rational. I'm 
uh, science based. I'm right. And I, so one of the, the things I do with my students is I always like, Hey, Thanksgiving's a myth. We all know none of this happened this way. It's a story. Why don't, why don't we just skip Thanksgiving? Let's like not do it this year. Let's call our moms, say we're not coming. Let's lock ourselves in this class classroom and just until the Dean agrees that we're not doing Thanksgiving at this school anymore, we're not coming out. Right. And a lot of them don't want to do it. And it's not necessarily because they, and this is what I think is really important because they believe in the foundations of the story in terms of like it, it totally adheres to reality. It's because of the rituals and traditions and community that go along with participating in the myth. Okay. So myths are stories we tell about ourselves in our world. And you can say, well, they're false or they're not false. I honestly don't care. What I care about is what do they do for people? So let me give you another myth that might be more palatable to folks in our circles. The arc of the universe bends towards justice. Martin Luther King Jr. That's a myth. It's a story about the universe. It could or could not be true. It may or may not be true. I don't know if at the end of history, the arc will have bent toward justice. We could make it happen. We could all bound together and work in a way that history continues in some form to go that way, but it's not guaranteed. It's not destiny. It's not fate. It's a myth. Now that myth brings us into a community of people that are like, yeah, let's protest. Let's advocate. Let's organize. Let's stand up for what's right. Let's not allow things to go on. Right. And it brings us into a community with rituals and traditions and actions. And there we go. We're off and running, right? Myths can be life affirming and wondrous, and they can be treacherous and exclusionary. So the myth of the Christian nation, we could do three hours right now. And I, and I, <laughs> I know you've talked to Andrew Seidel and others, right? You, we could go read Andrew's books and, and other great books that are like, it's just not true. It's just not. Here's a question I'm interested in beyond the history is what does that do for you? Yeah. What does that do yeah. for you? I want to ask that white woman who's 48 in, in the church, who's like clutching the, the cross and one hand and the flag and the other. I want to, I want to ask that 39 year old dad wearing the Christian t-shirt with the American flag hat, right? I want to ask them, why is it so important for you that this is a Christian country? What does that do for you? What kind of community does that bring in, you into? What kind of story do you think you're living out? What is it that from the past you think you're inheriting? And what kind of future do you think you're creating? And if we go to that level, I don't think we justify white Christian nationalism. I don't think we, we exonerate anybody. But we can start to see how and why these stories take root because they do things for people. They give them community. They give them tradition to teach their kids, right? They give them actions that they can take to shape their futures. And that is, is really, I think, the core of, of white Christian nationalism. It's a cultural identity told through various stories. And, and if we don't see that, then I don't think we have any chance because we can all do it. We can all get on Facebook. And I, 2012, Brad was like the worst. I would get on, you know, do you, you remember the Facebook threads with like 70, 780 comments and you're like <laughs> yelling at Jeff from third grade and like Janessa from ninth grade and totally debunking everything they're saying. And my wife is coming over every hour. Like this is not helping the world at all. This is doing nothing. <laughs> you're, you're just angry and you're going to be up all night. And this yep. is why do it. We could do that. We could, and we can have those conversations with our people at holidays and, and everything else. And I'm not saying not to, I'm just saying also ask yourself what the story does for them and see if you can't get into it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I love the way that you approach myth because I, I'm of a very similar mindset is that, that I think the myth about the word myth is that it's, yes. it purely 
dictates about true or false and that that someone further along in history (laughs) says that this was a false thing instead of this is a thing with like with like carl jung carl jungian like level power to like (laughs) invoke some something in someone like in in like the deepest parts of them like that's what the that's what the myth is like and that's what various types of art like uh like the sandman by neil gaiman captures really well is like these are the things that imbue humans with meaning it's not necessarily whether it's true or false because we'll we'll find a way to make meaning out of anything (laughs) that's just beautiful what you just said like that what i mean everything you just said uh, it's just you encapsulated all of it that was yeah that's incredible I want to I want to con- thank you and I, I want to continue on on talking about a couple of different aspects of some of these more pernicious myths that we have especially within within white evangelicalism and you do a good job talking about how white christian nationalism is not is not solely present amongst white evangelicals but but there is a significant overlap it's not quite a circle but it's it's closer than you want it to be. And a couple of the things that you connect with regard to some of these myths. The first one I want to talk about is you make this connection, but and you've done this throughout not just your book, but through through other other work that you've done. The connection between this sort of sexual purity culture that permeated evangelical youth culture in the 80s, 90s through today, and the even more nefarious purity culture at the heart of racism and in particular white supremacy. So I want to talk about that first, and then I also want to sort of unpack after after that, just to a preview for you and the listener. We'll talk about sort of the '60s and what happened in conservatism there. Yeah, but let's let's start with this purity culture, racism underbelly that is present and that you tease out in your book. Yeah, so let's let's start. Here's my thesis: Christian nationalism is the original purity culture. And Mm. it's especially true if we add in white Christian nationalism. So white Christian nationalism is the original purity culture. What does white Christian nationalism want if we distill it? I'm going to do what my co-host Dan Miller does, and I'm going to use the metaphor of the body. You know, what Dan would say is that every country or nation imagines itself as having a certain body, right? Mm. It's the ideal body type, you know, for your country. And and so if we had the ideal body of the the United States, if it was a statue in the Louvre or uh, in the Met, what would it be? And the ideal body for the white Christian nationalist has been since 1619 or 1776, for the most part and on the whole, a straight white male Christian body, right? That Mm -hmm. is native born in terms of its speaking English without an accent uh, or as a second language, patriarchal and having a Christian ethos. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of history I just mentioned, and you all can email me and say, well, what about this and what about that? And you'd be totally right, okay? <laughs> or pick, pick up his book and then argue yeah. with him after yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> even better. <laughs> um, but if, if we take that to be true just right now, 2022, that the people we've been talking about today in our churches, our former churches, see the United States as a white, male, able-bodied, native-born, English-speaking, patriarchal Christian, okay? Then... The goal is to make sure that nothing pollutes that body, right? We all know that we have different things that we don't like to put in our bodies or come into contact. Some of us eat organic. Some of us are vegetarian. Some of us are vegan. Some of us like to work out in certain ways, go to the gym, play racquetball. We do things to keep our body in shape and to keep it pure and not touched by contagions and infections and viruses and things that we think are gross and disgusting, okay? The idea for me is that 
Christian nationalism is the goal to keep the American body free from the impurities of color, free from the impurities of queerness, free from the impurities of foreignness. Don't let those things get into the American body. Don't let them glob on to the American body. Don't let them invade the American body. And if they have to be here, make sure they're like out of sight. Like, don't let them be like grotesque deformations that in the American body, like hopefully they're just behind the scenes and, and, and not really out front. We don't really want a biracial man with a father from another country named Hussein as the face of the country, do we? That's grotesque. That's gross to the white Christian nationalists. The American body has become infected. It's become deformed. I can't even look at it. It's so gross. Not my nation, not my country. All right. So you don't want queerness. You don't want color. You don't want mixed race. You don't want foreignness. And then you, you start to think about purity culture that some of us live through. And it says, look, keep yourself pure for marriage. Don't even think about sex before you get married. And gender roles. Man is, on man is, 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 is in charge. Woman is submissive. Man is a assertive, aggressive protector, a sexual savage. Woman is the, the maidservant, the one who, who only wants sex for intimacy. Man is the one who keeps the family pure and, and free from attackers, right? And if, you know, if you do this, and if you all read Dobson, and you, know, you, don't, you probably don't want to, I'm sure none of you want to, but <laughs> if you do, you'll notice how often he says, not only if you do this, will you be obeying God and setting yourself up for godly relationships, but you will save the United States. You will save the United States. You are the foot soldiers in the, the second civil war. So if you can remain pure, if you can order your relationships such that you have the right kind of marriage, the right kind of family, the right kind of gender role, and, and if you read Dobson, you can kind of stay away from, I don't know, unequally yoked marriages that might just happen if you marry across cultures or marry people from other places. You know, if you can do that and certainly not be queer in any way and certainly not be polyamorous or anything else, then you'll save the nation. Here's my, here's my conclusion. Sorry. Long essay. Everyone's like, you know, wrap it up, pal. <laughs> We're eating this up. Don't worry. <laughs> All of the hopes for the American body that the Christian nationalists wants are projected onto the canvas of white teenage flesh in the 90s and the 2000s. You take those white teenagers and you project onto them all the hopes and fears for the American body politic. And you're like, if we can just get them to do it right, if we can get, if we can form those bodies the right way, then maybe the American body will look like we want and we'll be free from all that impurity. That's not just sex before marriage and, you know, looking at Maxim magazine, but queerness, otherness, foreignness, so on and so on and so on. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's really, I'm, I, that's very interesting and like, and very captivating and something that continues. I continue to be challenged by, by the way you frame that and in a good way. What I mean by that is like, it, it comes back and like, I do try to reframe that. And then I, I appreciate that sort of focus on that. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth. And this podcast is just that here at the speaking in church podcast we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church it's a podcast about change it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side you can listen wherever you get your podcast and if you want to be a guest yes you regular person you can be a guest on the speaking in church podcast if you want to come on just let us know
The other, the other part of the myth that I want to also touch on, there's not really an easy segue here. The thing that did connect them is that I see these as myths. There's another section in your book, and there's a chapter called Extreme, Extremism is a Virtue. And one of the things that we sort of, the, like the common knowledge that everybody sort of thinks of when they think of the 1960s is it being the sort of this hippie generation, you know, free love and, and the Beatles and like, you know, the British invasion and, and uh, the grateful dead and whatever else, the flower, uh, flower children. But really like your book shows that, that conservatism was going through this very rapid evolution in that period as well. And I'm going to quote what you write about Barry Goldwater. You, you write, one of the ingenious moves that Goldwater made was linking freedom and individuality and capitalism to religion and labeling their opponents as the opponents of God and the United States, whose lives, whose, those who seek to live your lives for you to take your liberties in turn, he wrote. His nation was founded upon the rejection of that notion and upon the acceptance of God as the author of freedom. So given that we sort of have sort of forgotten or not really focused on this aspect of the 1960s, even though like the civil rights movement was a major part of it and, and all of that and, and the civil rights movement, this is what it was against. How did Goldwater's campaign really presage what would become of conservatism later on and what we sort of see now? I think there's a huge, so I think the two are totally connected. I know, I know you're saying like, it's a hard, it's a hard right turn here in terms of segues, but here's the follow on from the previous answers. The 1960s are the time when white Christian nationalists of our, of our era think that the American body got corrupted and impure. It's when the American body got invaded and infected. Why? Mm. Well, civil rights act, civil rights movement. Okay. End of Jim Crow. Immigration reform. So a lot of people don't realize that immigration reform had not happened since like the 1920s and that the 1965 immigration reform policy made it possible for us to have the America we have now. So many people coming from places across the world, Asia and so on. 1963, Feminine Mystique is published. Women are entering the workforce in mass. No fault divorce becomes legal. So I don't, you know, if I'm a woman, I don't have to have some sort of justification for wanting divorce. I can just get one. Queer liberation. 1969, Stonewall. And that was, there was queer liberation happening way before that, but that's a watershed moment that people always kind of look to. These are the moments, these are the movements, these are the policies that the white Christian nationalist says infected the American body. And oh, by the way, in the 1960s, Engel versus Vital made it no longer possible to have prayer in school in a, for a Christian purpose, no longer Bible reading in the school. So this is also when God got taken out of the schools, supposedly, we've all heard a million times, right? Thank you, so Barton. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, right? This is when the white Christian nationalist is like, oh yeah, the 60s, that's when the American body got invaded, infected, diseased, and impure, right? And so conservatism's reaction is to become more extreme. So Barry Goldwater is the 1964 GOP candidate for president, and he says in his acceptance speech, Extremism is a virtue. Think about that statement. Extremism is a virtue. And he also says moderation is not, right? So to be moderate is no longer good enough. Extremism must be the ethos of our party as conservatives. He loses in a landslide. Some of you are like, didn't sign up for all this history when I turned on <laughs> evangelical. But all of his foot soldiers, the people that emerged from his campaign, are people like Paul Weirich and Richard Vigory, who formed the Council for National Policy. 
the Heritage Foundation, the kinds of people that inspire the Federalist Society and all of the conservative network and nodes and networks that we know kind of are in the ether now, they all happen in that, in that movement. And then they link up with the Falwells and the Grahams and the Robertsons. And what we get is extremism is a virtue from the 60s all the way through to 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. It was not novel. It was not new. Now, there are novel and new things about Trump, but that ideal that unless we take the back the country by way of extremism, then we'll lose it goes back to the 60s. And it goes back to the white Christians thinking that their bodies had become infected by all this, all these people who didn't deserve it in the United States. Thank you for connecting that because that that's that's powerful stuff. <laughs> it's one of those things where, well, okay, do I just let there be dead air? <laughs> <Probably. laughs> no. While I process this for a second before I go to the next question, because uh, that's that that's a lot to chew on. <laughs> so, like, so I'll just say, I'll just say, like, you, you say, well, are you exaggerating? I'll say, well, there, and I cite this in the book in 2019 or 20, like one of the executives of Focus on the Family said everything I just said on a podcast it was like, yeah, it's really the 1960s when this country lost its sexual revolution and blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, he, he comes out and says it. He's like the sixties are the time when the country was no longer great again. Right. I mean, think about if you want, think about if you want to go back to the fifties as the great era, right? Like if you're Betsy in church and you're a white woman and you're like, yeah, fifties, that's what we should go back to. And it's like, so you're telling me before the end of Jim Crow, before the civil rights act, before the immigration reform, before uh, the loving act, like the loving case, when like interracial marriage was protected federally, before no, I mean, you're telling me that that's when we should go back to the ninth, right? You're mm. telling on yourself, but that's exactly what they're saying. Yeah. Whew. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's one of one of the metaphors I've sort of come back to. You you've talked about your co-host Dan's sort of continued use of, of the idea of the body. One of the things that, that I sort of think of, or maybe I, I've sort of thought of and, and said this here and there, but I, I sort of think of white evangelicalism in particular because it's my lived experience. The sort of circle of orthodoxy has gotten tighter and tighter and more constricting since the 1960s. Because, I mean, you have like the new evangelicals who are like, oh, there are too many fundamentalists. And then they try to Yep. They try to bring some moderation to it and then they get kicked out. And then fast forward to, you know, Russell Moore not being conservative enough, even though by and large, he's a very conservative theologian and, and his social beliefs are quite conservative, but he's not conservative enough for the SBC anymore. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but at the same time, it's what, what these sorts of conversations reveal is that that extremism was always there. But it seems like the the political extremism sort of infected and encouraged this latent extremism that was already present in these circles, right? And that then over time, we've seen white evangelical spaces, because of other aspects of them, get very good at expelling people who <laughs> who disagree and enforcing would-be reformers out. Maybe, maybe you even thought of yourself as that. I know I did at one point. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring some sense to this, <laughs> to this space. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be a moderating influence. Um, yeah. But they don't want moderation. <laughs> they don't. Of, they, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I, I was just gonna say. I think you're right. And I think right. If it, what you said, 
a minute ago is is really I think the crux of it is the political the political extremism of expressed by someone like Goldwater is combined with this gusto to take back the country on the part of someone like Falwell, Robertson, LaHaye, uh, La Billy Graham. And what they provide is a religious story, right? We talked about myth earlier. They mm -hmm. give you these, all of these myths about the, the nation, God's chosen people, a city on a hill, returning to our founders and our foundation, returning to our beginnings and our creator. Like, the, like Christian nationalism is so genius because it gives you stories that are cosmic and and that go to the ends of time and the ends of space. And so they can they can do, you know, Barry Goldwater was limited. He he really wasn't that religious. And so he kind of gave it this this cloak, but it was really his heirs that really figured out tell the story, right, by way of of God the divine and cosmos and you can reach to the ends of the earth and the extremism can take root in that way and it's going to be covered in a religious form. It's a lot harder to like criticize and take it down and attack it if you're just like a white, if you're David Duke, or if you're just a white nationalist, or if you're just a bigot. It's it's a lot harder. It's it, it's a lot more to circumvent than just that out and out kind of pure, you know, racism or anti democratic impulse or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's very very hard to to root out. I have a handful of more more questions along these along these lines in the to bring it back to January 6th in the immediate aftermath of that you wrote a very prescient article for the New York Times called Trump's new civil religion and you identified it correctly as this new creation myth for a political movement how in the 2 years nearly 2 years since have you seen this play out in the ways and what you've observed and commented on you know, whether it's in the political arena or media or or anywhere anywhere else, where have you seen that creation myth sort of take hold and be expressed? Yeah. So if we if we go back to what you said earlier about myths, you know, they're they're stories and they're ways we make meaning. Okay. So the story that, that Trump told about the 2020 election is that it was stolen. And that it was stolen. okay, so that's number one. It was stolen. Okay. So by whom was it stolen? Elites. There's all these people above you that are conspiring to take your country. It was stolen by elites who rigged machines and deep state operatives and uh, demon-possessed demon Democrats. They took the election. By extension, they took your country. Okay? So that's the myth. Like the, the way you make meaning of losing is it was stolen by elites who want to take my country. And those elites who are above me have also convinced those below me, all those people of color and immigrants and 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 other folks that I consider not on my level, they've convinced them to get on board with their stolen property uh, movement. Okay, so you start telling that story. And then the story takes on a form such that it has all the things we identified with myth earlier, rituals and traditions and memories and actions. So now people are like, we need to march. To get our country back, we need to monitor voting uh, drop-off boxes by carrying AR-15s and sitting in our truck and watching them. There was a moment when Glenn Youngkin, uh, who's now governor of Virginia, was running for that office. There was a rally, and he actually wasn't there, but the people who organized the rally started the rally with the Pledge of Allegiance, and the flag that they used was one from J6. So think about that. That's You're a relic. That's a relic. That's, it's a relic. 
That's a relic. So <laughs> now the myth has relics, right? The myth has relics. It's like Plymouth Rock. Why the hell do you go to Plymouth? Y'all ever been to Plymouth Rock? It's like the tiniest, shittiest rock ever. Sorry, I know. You're, I'm going to get... <laughs> I'm going to get emails. I'm like, un-Amer- I know I, I'm, I hate America. I'm sure someone's going to tell me that. I'm just saying from an objective perspective, Plymouth Rock is like nothing special, but it's a relic. So you go there. Some mm-hmm. people do and they touch it and they tell their kids and okay, great. That's how relics work, right? Yeah. So we now have MAGA relics. A lot of you probably don't and you shouldn't, but you don't hang around like, you know, right wing social media spaces. You know who the martyr is? Ashley Babbitt. There are flags to Ashley Babbitt. Ashley Babbitt is on flags that people carry at rallies. She's on people's profiles. There are badges for Ashley Babbitt, the woman killed at J6, trying to enter the chambers, right? Mm -hmm. The people who are uh, arrested and convicted and still in prison for their participation in J6 are called Sixers. So now we have martyrs and we have relics to our myth. And when a myth takes root, it's really hard to root it out. It's like ivy. It grows. And it just becomes fact, right? So for there's millions and millions of Americans, it's just fact. And you can ask them to sort of back up what they're saying. And and in, in, they'll kind of look at you like, well, everyone knows that. Everybody knows that, right? Your uncle on Facebook, your friend, right, who who's, who's you used to know from church, they just think everybody knows it was stolen. It, what do you mean tell you how and why I believe that? I just know that because everybody knows it. Water's wet, gravity exists because when i drop things they fall to the ground and the 2020 election was stolen and i go to rallies i go to church i listen to the radio and all the memories and traditions and relics and martyrs related to that story are performed around me and it reinforces them and reinforces them so carrie lake is in court today down in arizona fighting because she says the election was stolen right doug mastriano refused to concede in pennsylvania because right he wasn't sure things were okay and he wasn't sure he lost and blah, 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 right? Those are corollary performances of the big lie myth that now has a life of its own. It's like the lost cause in the South after uh, the Civil War. It's like the stab in the back myth in Germany after World War I and during the rise of Hitler. And unfortunately, since I wrote that piece two years ago, all of that has happened and all of that has taken root. And it's, it's really scary. One of the things that I do appreciate about your book to to bring it back to the beginning of our discussion is is you you are trying to in in many ways which i I think is is part and parcel of, of people who have left white evangelical or high demand religions, especially in the United States, where over the last several years they've had considerable sway over everyone's lives. We're trying to understand our own experience in light of that, and there's you know, we started the conversation there about you imagining whether you could have been there. And I I want to do something similar to sort of to tie up our conversation, which is to first ask about your own sort of personal understanding of 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 that. And then also also looking from your your own vantage point at broader things. But starting with your with yourself, one of the things that I'm that I'm thinking about lately is is how this thing we now call deconstruction isn't always really a choice. Sometimes it's it's the circumstances, like these external circumstances. Sometimes it's a sudden understanding of ourselves. But just as importantly, and I think it's something by you imagining yourself at January 6th, which I think many of us can do, like imagining hypothetical versions of ourselves, 
is also understanding that something like deconstruction isn't always a given. You know, I think your book really highlights that when you imagine yourself there. So one of the things that that I'm generally interested in beyond just this specific show, as far as talking to people who left this particular religious space and understanding why is by and large how people change their minds in this day and age. And I'm curious what you think about that, about, you know, given that something like deconstruction isn't a given, like if you are in a, in some sort of environment that doesn't challenge your worldview or whatever else, it doesn't, it just doesn't happen for you. Is changing your mind in, you know, we talk about polarization and all these other things with regard to media is changing your mind, something that's possible through media or debate, or do we just sort of entrench ourselves uh, in, in these camps? Because that's what the media and the way we relate to the world encourages us to do now. You know, you're touching on something I think we've talked about in the past, which is that a lot of people who've deconstructed in, in a certain in a certain path, at least, have done so because they are curious and they're they're people that read a lot or they want to learn a lot. And the more that they learn and are exposed to different ideas and different worldviews, the more the constraints of a high demand religion become uh, unbearable and claustrophobic and so on. I think there's a larger question, though, which is to say, OK, so what if you're not one of those people? What if what if you're not the kind of person, you know, like I've heard you talk about yourself who in the wake of the Iraq war is just like, I, I, I'm not sure I can abide by this. And I'm going to go read things that really back up the fact that this is not how Christianity has to be. And this is not how our churches have to be and so on. I think the thing that really I, I come back to, and this is what we talked about all day today, are our stories and bodies, right? And I think that, you know, if, if I come into contact with somebody who's just completely ensconced in, in these echo chambers and really has no glimpse out outward, is not listening to podcast or radio or watching anything or listening to anyone who has a different perspective. My first question is not, well, how the hell could you believe this? Blah, 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 blah. My first question is, hey, what, what, what scares you right now? Like, what mm. do you, what, what frightens you about the United States and the world? Like, I, I just want to know what, like, what, like, what really makes you afraid at night for your kids, for your community? What makes you like mad? Why, why, what are you mad about? Like, what, what's so like wrong that you just want to like fix, you know? And I'm not asking to make fun of you. I'm not asking to get you. I'm, this is not like, I'm going to show you why you're wrong. I just, I want to know why you're mad. Who do you resent? Who are the people that like have taken stuff from you in your mind? What are you hopeful for? Like, what would, what would make things better? And if we start talking that way, then they might let me talk the same way. And they might trust me a little bit because I'm not saying you're so stupid for believing this. And I believe something else I'm saying, Hey, I'm a human. You're a human. Like, what are you afraid of? Cause I'm, a, I have like a little daughter. I am like afraid of all this stuff and that I'm like worried about this. And then we're often running on a conversation that is about people who are feeling certain ways. And that is directing their bodies. That is directing how they, how they, uh, the, the affect that drives them. And then we can get into the stories that we tell to reckon with those emotions. Like I'm angry. And so I'm going to do this because, right. These folks have said this about the country and the past and its future and its present. And, and I'm resentful of those people. Cause I got told that they're the ones that took my job and they're the ones that threatened me. And here's the stories that I've bought into to kind of like filter my emotions and put them into a deposit somewhere. And then at the very end, and this usually never gets to the stage, you can talk about the facts. This is really QAnon. Is that really something viable or, you know, blah, 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 blah. I guess I'm just saying it's easy to get hung up on 
whether or not myths are true. It's easy to get hung up with your relatives on what they believe is true or not. We could just start with questions about what they're feeling and maybe see if they'll let us have the same, the same turn. And we might get further than we usually do when it comes to these kinds of encounters. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's... No, I, yeah. I, I think it does. I think, I think you're right to identify those things like stories and bodies. Like uh, when it comes down to it, that's, that's, that's what we're made up of. Like it's what it's we're we're made up of the stories we tell about ourselves and we're made up of our physical selves. And that's about, that's about it. <laughs> like everything else is, is sort of happenstance. <laughs> I think that I mean I do think it's emotion that that short short circuits these conversations more than anything. The fact that we get so worked up, like so so worked up, and like and I can be conspiratorial and say this is the result of forty years of uh, right wing media force feeding people nothing but totally. anger, totally. anger and grievance. Like I mean. That I think there isn't enough evidence to to yes. illustrate a point like that as well. Totally, totally. That's not just anecdotal. Like, like I I think that is, but but I think the side effect of that is that the amount of investment that's required to get to that <laughs> does mean you have to have a therapy session or multiple in order to to peel away and say like why 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 are you so fucking angry <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, like, uh, or, or like, why is this, why yeah. is this so important to you? What, why? And, and, yeah. uh, yeah, that, that's a, that's a big barrier. And it, it, I don't think that there's necessarily like a, you know, a mass solution. Cause I, I feel like we, we've had plenty of come to Jesus moments and we've said maybe later, Jesus, like <laughs> enough times as a nation that it's like, okay, I guess it's the, I guess it's the, the straight and narrow, the very difficult path we're going to take the hard path um, because we're too bullheaded and stubborn to. <laughs> well, and, and there's also like, if we, you know, I think you're right. The right-wing media is huge and it for like, it's not that emo emotions and bodies can be formed and cultivated and, and media forms and cultivates those bodies. Right. So that's one coming to Jesus for a lot of people would mean giving up privilege or giving up money, giving up, you know, power. Oh, so yeah, yeah. there's other reasons you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't do that too. Right. And so it definitely gets complex really fast. Uh, but I mean, but you can't yeah. even start to untangle all those overlapping threads until you are, you like, you calm down that body, you know, and then, but that's a lot of work. And then some people just, because, because of things like, because of the existence of racism and things like that, you'll be discounted out of hand <laughs> and like, totally. and it doesn't help that, that a major party literally demonizes the opponents like on a regular basis. That's right. So, so these, these are difficult that's things right. to, to parse and I appreciate the, the extent to which you <laughs> you answered that question because it I, I know it wasn't an, I know it's not an easy one and it's just uh, this like large open ended question that I think I'll be bandying about in my in my head and in in my public and public work and private life forever so because it's just the age we yeah. live in <laughs> yeah yeah no that's I right want to to close out our discussion which I've really really enjoyed I always enjoy our any opportunity we get to talk on air or off with 
I, I don't know. It's a, it's a bit of a bummer. I'll be honest, <laughs> but let's, let's just go with it, which is basically in 2022, we saw a number of victories for the conservative movement for lack of a, a better term. Most notably, I think the downfall of Roe, which was a significant yep. loss for around 50% of bodies in this, uh, in this country. But then the sort of myopic recency bias of the media seems to think that because the midterms weren't as catastrophic for Democrats, the current party and leadership, that this is a sort of categorical refusal of Trumpism and Christian nationalism. But calling back to those five words of I should have known better, (laughs) like I, I have a sense of like fool me once type of cynicism and yeah. maybe maybe a, a a touch of wisdom about that sort of <laughs> that thing and i don't think it's necessarily so tidy or easy so what do you i mean what do you think we'll see develop in this space in the coming years like there are very very strong words you use like cold civil war throughout the book what do you what developments do you sort of think we might see and then just to just to do a nod and a crib to your show, <laughs> I'll also tack on, despite all of those things, what are some of the reasons for hope that you have in in response to to the more recent developments that we've seen here at the tail end of 2022? So I, I think where I sit right now, and I, I don't, nothing is fate and nothing is destiny. And if you meet people that think they know what's going to happen uh, for sure, then you shouldn't listen, you <laughs> yes. should turn it off and not listen to them. <laughs> And they're, they're dangerous and they're just, they, you know, just don't, but I don't know what's going to happen with Donald Trump. I have no idea. I, I don't know if he is a viable candidate. I don't know if Rupert Murdoch turning on him and big Republican donors and others turning on him will make a difference. I have no idea right now. I'm not going to say that I do. What I do know is what I do know though. Let's, if I do have some data, I have data that says Ron DeSantis won Florida in like a landslide. And I also have data that Ron DeSantis is gaining popularity and steam by running in many ways to the right of Trump, like on vaccines or on migrants. Okay. So what I think I can see from that data is that Trumpism is alive and well in ways that are becoming even more virulent and and vitriolic. Even if Trump himself is in jeopardy as the de facto leader of the party and as a 2024 candidate and his tax returns just came out and blah, blah, blah. Okay. I think that represents where the American right continues to go. And that is to say places where they see an apocalypse on the horizon, they see a demon on the other side of the aisle, and they're going to do anything they can to hold on to whatever power and leverage they still have. One of the arguments I make in the book is that democracy for many people in this movement is not a sacred value. Power is. So if they have to martyr democracy to keep the country they want, they will do it. And and you can see that in the legal means that are uh, being pushed through, the independent state legislature theories, the the various secretaries of state who ran that were election deniers. You can also see it in extra legal ways in the conspiracy surrounding January 6th, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and so on. There's legal and extra legal ways that this is happening. Okay. So I think that is where we continue to head um, in terms of the American conservative movement and the Christian nationalists who are at the heart of it. But nothing is, is set in stone. So if you would have asked people in 1959, 
Would you have a civil rights act? Would you have an immigration reform? Would you have the Loving case? Would you have a woman's rights movement that changed history? In 1959, people would have been like, I, no, I don't think Dwight Eisenhower's you know, been president and we're just out here in the wake of World War II. Are you, and I don't think that's mm-hmm. coming, but it did come. So the reason for hope is that history is not written. It's not a matter of fate. It's a matter of human action. And so there are ways that we see those glimmers. We see Michelle Wu, the first Asian American woman, the first woman to be mayor of, of Boston, right? We see the fact that there are trans legislatures being elected mm-hmm. in state houses, right? In places like Delaware. We see that we have, you know, people of color and queer folks who are gaining places of representation, whether that's in Wilmington, North Carolina, where there's a black woman mayor in a in a country that uh a country a city that uh has a his, his uh, history of of voter intimidation and not allowing african americans the right to the ballot so all over the place we see these glimmers right and they can be overshadowed by trump and j6 and conspiracies and sedition and oath keepers and and yes and the overwhelmingly tragic and 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 terrible news about roe yes and so we have to realize that history is not written yet. And that if you would have asked folks in 1960, what did they have any idea that JFK was going to be assassinated, that Lyndon Johnson would become president, that he would sign a civil rights, a set of civil rights reforms with, with Martin Luther King Jr. at his side, that Stonewall would happen, that 50 years later, gay marriage would be legal. No one would have ever predicted. So that is where we have to, I think, kind of keep our head and say, whatever you do, organizing, activism, involvement, keep doing it and support people who are doing other stuff because there is a chance that the arc of the universe bends towards justice, but we have to see. And we're the ones that can answer that question. Hmm. I love that. That's a great, great note to end on just because, you know, that's the overwhelming feeling and that in much of the country is, you know, it's shortened days and shitty weather and like days without seeing the sun and a a difficult national year, I'm sure for many people difficult personally, but at the same time, yeah, there's, there's work to be done. Doesn't mean burn yourself out. (laughs) Uh, Oftentimes you find your limits by, by ignoring them. (laughs) Yeah. Been there. (laughs) I know that from personal experience too, but I, I love that. Uh, these are these are all things, all signals that that the simple the simple myths don't reflect, but we That's can right. can we can find our own sense of hope in them and and mm-hmm. you know find some some meaning and and motivation there. So, Brad, thank you very much for your time today. Again, the title of the book is "Preparing for War." The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Fred, is there anything else that um, that you want to mention here at the end? Anything else you want to plug? Listeners, uh, there will be links in the show notes to find the the book on bookshop.org and Amazon. And the show notes, those are affiliate links. Purchasing them there will help help this show. Anything else you want to mention here at the tail end, Brad? I'll, I'll be in 
uh, down in Southern California, January 13, in Costa Mesa, at uh, the, the church that was the former church of Reverend Sarah Heath and Josie Jimenez. And I'll be down in Los Angeles, uh, January 14, San Francisco, February 2nd. So if you're interested in kind of coming out to an event and talking more, uh, you can check out our link tree at Straight White American Jesus. And that's all there. Final thing I'll just say is, Blake, uh, as always, just thankful for you and your work and, um, you know, your your friendship and everything that you've done to further the conversation surrounding not only Christian nationalism, but, you know, hashtag <laughs> evangelical. Just really feel like I wouldn't be here without all of your support. So thank you for, for that. Thank you, Brad. And uh, uh, thank you again for coming on. And I'm excited to see see to see the way people receive your book and and see it see it out in the world it's it's a great book and i know people will will learn a lot thank you again for coming on the show First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.